0: You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you
1: personally? Brexit process.
0: U.S. Investment Bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once-in-a-generation vote. financial crisis.
1: But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude.
0: Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current legal and political events. If you like this podcast, don't forget to follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. My name is Ramesh Ghanoharthi, and with me today is Elsa Fernando-Gonzalo, a PhD candidate from the University of Salamanca, with whom I will discuss the EU's immigration policy with a particular emphasis on its informal readmission deals. So, Elsa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, could you maybe just start off by giving a brief introduction of what your research is on?
1: So, my research mainly focuses on the cooperation that the EU developed with uh, third countries in the matter of uh, readmission. This uh, cooperation is really broad, and you can cooperate in trade, uh, finance, uh, development aid, whatever other fields. But I focused on readmission. And readmission is uh, encompassed in this uh, broad label that we call the external dimension of EU migration policy. And this dimension has been acquiring greater importance, especially after the migration crisis that we witnessed in 2011, 2015. And we can also discuss if we are now in a new migration crisis. Uh, Take this between labels. One of the aims of the EU is to keep people away from the continent. And if uh, people take people as uh, illegal migrants, reach the continent or reach the land, and they are not entitled to international protection, proceed to return and give back these people to their countries in a fast and effective manner? How is it possible to return people who do not have the right to stay in the territory through an uh, readmission agreement with third countries of origin, but also countries of transit? And this is a challenge from the European Union because the ratios and the quotas are really low. Uh, just one in three uh, of the return decisions that are issued by the national authorities actually end up in a return of these people or, or this person to their country of origin or the country of transit. And what the union is doing, especially after 2010, is in order to fast and and make more effective these returns, is or make the processes more flexible. How do you do it more flexible? Through uh, flexibility or through the abandonment of the procedural system and the the way to conclude an agreement in uh, international law and also in European law is through a process of concluding an international treaty. Because readmission agreements are international treaties, but the trend that we attempt now is to make it in an infor- informal way. And this informality poses uh, main uh, advantages, but also risk or uh, dangerous uh, sides to the uh, legal system in which the European Union should move.
0: So you focus again on this, the difference between the, what maybe you can call hard law, the actual agreements, and this soft law or somewhat informal agreements how different are they?
1: Indeed so uh, the, the differentiation is made between soft law and hard law agreements. Soft law is a really general label you can uh, encompass in there a lot of different documents but uh, when talking about readmission we are talking about for example the EU declaration with Turkey of 2016 but also talking about Other documents that are concluded in the form of memorandum of understanding, Mm -hmm. standard of operation, and a key document is the joint way forward with Afghanistan. That is uh, the one that the academia studies the most. And the main difference is that hard law agreements, hard law agreements on terms of readmission, they do have a process under European law and under European law treaties. So the prerogatives of the European institutions have to be respected during the whole process. So in general terms, uh, the Council adopts a decision authorizing the Commission to open negotiations with a third country. The Commission is the institution that actually represents the EU and goes to the meetings with the authorities of this third country and has to inform the European Parliament through the whole process. That's quite important because on the other side of the coin, if we uh, take the soft law agreements, Since there is no a procedural rule for disagreements in European Union law, the parliament is not being informed of these agreements, but indeed they are being concluded. So one of the disadvantages is that uh, we cannot have a strong democratic control by the European Union. What is the other difference and also a really important one? Hard law agreements create international obligations. And soft law agreements, at least if we just take the words of the parties, they are not intent to create uh, binding relations. They are not intent to create obligations.
0: Mm -hmm. And so a follow up question in relation to the soft law agreements. So who are the parties in these soft law agreements that we see uh, most often?
1: For example, if we uh, take uh, the case of the Afghanistan one, the, from the part of the European Union, the commission is the one that is negotiating the, the joint way forward. But in the side of the third countries, it is usually uh, the Ministry of Interior or the police uh, or whatever it is in their national uh, system, police administra- administrative uh, leaders or uh, powers or whatever you call it in, in that national law. For example, the case of the declaration with Turkey was quite uh, really controversial because it was supposed to be concluded by the European Union and the authorities of Turkey. Then the case uh, went in front of the European Court of Justice. And what the European Court of Justice says is that even though it seems and the EU actually participates through its uh, two institutions, in this case the Council and the Commission, the declaration with Turkey is uh, an international... Non-binding agreement conclude between each of the European Union member states and the authorities of Turkey. So that's why the soft law agreements are kind of a tool that can it can be uh, positive in a way that you can actually achieve better results and in a faster way. But it also has a lot of perils in terms of law and law enforcement and law procedural guarantees.
0: Okay, so that that is a very I think an interesting differentiation uh, and let me just uh, reiterate it, my understanding of it's a hard law agreements are pretty much done by the EU with oversight from the various EU institutions and by a third country, but soft law can happen from the EU commission, but also it can happen from a member state or a group of member states with a third country as well. So how do these agreements, these soft law agreements relate to other uh, international conventions or international hard law agreements that already exist, like, for example, the Dublin Regulations.
1: Well, in practical terms, there is a conflict, at least potentially there is a conflict, because since you can execute a return because your base is one of these soft law agreement with a third country, then you cannot control what's going on in that return. So, for example, yes, it can. It can has an impact on, for example, uh, well, Dublin is European law. If we take the scope of international law, it can affect the Geneva Convention on refugees and its additional protocol, affecting the, the main uh, the key of this uh, convention, the non-refoulement principle. Because mm-hmm. if, the, if we need uh, effective and, rep- and fast returns, sometimes it can lead to situations situation in which people is not uh, individually identified and therefore they cannot actually exercise their right to apply for asylum or for international protection in that country. And if we take this even uh, further, if we do not identify the people, how do we know if we are dealing with a minor? Then we can also affect the convention of the right of the child.
0: So all of these things are interlinked and and clearly one must consider these different uh, scenarios of how international law or international legal instruments affect and interact with the soft law regulations. Do you have any examples?
1: Indeed, we can take the the example of the case in the eu Turkey deal that came after the European Court of Justice. It was brought by a... I do not remember if they were if they were Afghans or Syrians. They actually applied and in front of the court because they were taken back from Greek territory to Turkish territory based on this declaration. And this declaration is a soft law instrument; it's not a hard law instrument creating obligations for the countries. So they were blaming or at least complaining in front of the court. Why am I, I being returned? to uh, this uh, third country, said Turkey, and leaving aside the matter if Turkey is considered a third safe country or not, what is the legal basis for, for my return? Because at that moment the, the formal readmission agreement between Turkey and Greece was not uh, into force. So indeed it's, it's always a problem of legal basis, but from the point of view of the individual. If we take the point of view of the states, Since I have a soft law agreement or a political agreement with that country, we can still keep on conducting this type of practices as long as an individual cannot reach a court and complain and actually try to look for a procedural or or an administrative way to bring in in front of a court these uh, practices.
0: To me, it seems like this soft law... Agreements are designed in such a way to prevent individuals who are seeking asylum to actually get in that right.
1: Indeed, it's just another tool of uh, government, of states and the EU as a whole of states in order to prevent irregular migrants to enter into a territory. And once, once you are in the country, if you are about to be expelled, then the idea is that you do not have as much as legal aspects or legal background to appeal for your uh, return to your own country or to a transit country. So indeed, yeah, it's also, it's a way to circumvent the system, but it's a way to circumvent the system aimed and promote by the authorities. That's why it's a, mm-hmm. a risk and a topic to to study.
0: Another kind of dimension that... I also quite find it very interesting is the whole idea of externalization of the EU borders. So, of course, the EU has its external borders, but that border is no longer the border, but it extends much more beyond official EU territory. Uh, Maybe a good example would be the case of Ceuta and Malia, where there are agreements with Morocco to kind of every few weeks, months to kind of Collect the refugees, asylum seekers who are on Moroccan territory but close to Ceuta or Malia, take them, bus them to southern parts of Morocco, for example. So, how do these agreements of readmission agreements relate to the whole idea of externalization of borders?
1: Indeed, the the externalization of borders is uh, it has been there already since the beginning of the of the twenty first century, but it's uh, just another tool of the toolbox that the EU and border countries have uh, in order to uh, deal with, with migration. You have mentioned the, the example of Morocco, but for example, Spain also has uh, agreements with Mauritania in order to patrol or co-patrol the borders. But yeah, indeed, the idea of externalization is taking as far as possible the control and also keeping the people as far as possible from the territory also uh, i'm just taking talking from the spanish perspective we also have police cooperation agreements with senegal in a manner of externalized control uh, there are spanish policemen working in senegal in order to keep Senegalese people or other type of migrants to take any of the routes that lead them to either the Canary Islands or the territorial Spain. Uh, in the terms of externalization, it's really important to mention uh, the uh, Frontex, the agency of the European Union to patrol and control uh, the borders, because also Frontex, as an European agency, uh, also concludes and close agreements Soft agreements in the manner of working arrangements with uh, third countries. So it's not just border countries such as Spain concluding agreements to externalize the, the control of the borders, but also European agencies uh, themselves. But yeah, indeed, the, the idea is uh, this concept of fortress, uh, fortress Europe and strength the fortress.
0: That, those are very, very pertinent and very interesting examples that you gave about the types of agreements in the case, in your example, in case of Spain that signs with different countries. And maybe going slightly on a different angle so, these readmission agreements and also the externalization of borders, these soft law agreements, how, from the perspective of the state, how successful are they?
1: Well, they, they actually do not check that much if they're successful. If we just look at the trend in the last 10 years, it seems like this is the only way to do it. And we, we cannot even check if this is uh, working or not. If uh, you take an academia point of view and you analyzed uh, how were, the, for example, the return rates with uh, Afghanistan, before and after they joined the way forward with Afghanistan that the EU as a whole conclude, the return rates were actually higher uh, before the soft law agreement was concluded than later. So indeed, in some cases, the soft law agreements are not working, but we can argue if a soft law agreement is better than no agreement at all. In the case of, of Spain, the ratios in the returns and that's my personal opinion. They do not depend that much on what type of agreement do you conclude. It depends more on diplomatic and other affairs. For example, uh, we do have a specific plan of development aid direct to Africa, especially to Senegal. So if Senegal gets more than 50% of those funds that are supposed to be to the whole, for the whole continent, then Senegal is going to cooperate on the management of the return of their nationals. Because in some way, that's what a readmission agreement does. Cooperation between two parties, because the person is already in the European state. And through this agreement, we want to take this person back to their own country. But you need to uh, provide them with documents. You need to provide them with a a flight or whatever way of trip. So it's more uh, than just Put a person into a flight and take this person back to their countries. More than the concept of deportation that we can just take from the movies, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very fascinating research on again how all these things is not just again readmission in itself, but it's tied to all these other bilateral agreements, financial aid, development aid, et cetera. So in a way, you could say it's a whole network and you can really look at it from a very holistic way. Do you have any other examples, maybe from Spain that can kind of give, give all like a case study of an individual that maybe has faced this?
1: Yes, we can uh, discuss about the uh, the problems in the cities of uh, Melilla and Ceuta, and uh, we do have a really recent case on the European Court on Human Rights. and But that one is more related to collective expulsion. But first, let me make the point that the process of re-admission is a continuum. So we have in the first place, for example, Spain issues a return decision for a national of Senegal. Then that person has to go through all the process of return. It actually goes into a flight and goes back to Senegal. But in Senegal, Senegalese authorities have to impose or practice in these persons a process of reintegration. So keep in mind that it's a three-way process. Going back to the, the example of Spain. In Spain, in the border with Morocco, there is a fence. Uh, This fence was reinforced and rebuilt with uh, three actual stages of fences uh, back in 2005, if I'm not mistaken. And what happens in there is that, for example, 100 people at night decided to cross from the Moroccan Way to the Spanish one. They jump into the fence, they cross, but they are apprehended by the authorities in the middle of those fences. So is that Spanish territory or is it Moroccan territory? Well, the law is not that much clear, but in most of the cases, those people are either taken by the Moroccan authorities and sent back to Morocco or taken by the Spanish authorities, give back to the Moroccan authorities and return to Moroccan territory. That's not based on a, a readmission agreement. That's just a, a police uh, practice, but it's also a matter of concern. In the case that I was talking about in the European Court of Human Rights, there were two people, if I'm not mistaken, I think they were uh, from Mali and from Congo, and they suffered one of these practices. And they claimed that they uh, had been taken from the Spanish authorities, so being under Spanish authorities, they are supposed to be entitled to apply for asylum in Spain, or at least be informed of this right, but they were immediately took back to Morocco. What the European Court of Human Rights said in a first hearing was that these people were right. They were supposed to be hurt by Spanish authorities, but Spain claimed again, and this case was solved by the Great Chamber, the Great Chamber said that because these people were not crossing by formal point, a border point between Spain and Morocco, they were not entitled to enter Spanish territory. But in that manner, uh, that was a a collective expulsion, if we uh, may say that. And that is also forbidden if we take European law. So I think in this manner, the European Court of Human Rights just missed the opportunity to to give light in this uh, border that is, I told you already, is a blurry and gray area in in our uh, country.
0: Yeah, fascinating examples and fascinating cases, and I'm and I'm sure our, our listeners would be interested in um, reading more and looking up more on this. My kind of final question is what inspired you to do this research and what would you recommend individuals who may be interested in topic where, should, where can they look more
1: well um, i'm not much an inspirational person but i think that like migration and law has always been uh around me since i was a child um I was born here in Spain but uh, I've always heard stories of uh, relatives who emigrate either to other countries uh, here in Europe or also to Latin America. So I think mobility is something that is really all around me since I was little. And then when I study law I start to realize that even though you have procedural law, administrative law, in most of the cases the people who can get the most or also the ones who can be the more discriminated ones are the people who are non-nationals. So uh, that's why I was trying to, to check or to analyze and read also on, on, on these type of topics. And then if you go up in the States, you find the European Union. That I'm, I'm, ama- I'm amazed with the European Union. I'm a lover of the European Union, but in some case, I have to apply my, my legal studies. And, and this was a topic That actually take my my heart, like how using the gray area between politics and law, the rights of the the most vulnerable people can be affected. And what would I recommend if the topic of research or interest is just uh, migration, we can always check uh, all the European Union database and so on from the the point of view of uh, law studies. But also do not take aside the international law area. All the UN agencies working with migrants are doing a great job. You have the UNHCR, you have uh, the uh, International Organization for Migration. And through these uh, international agencies or institutions, you can actually get a bigger picture of what's going on with people moving uh, around the world.
0: Okay. That's that's amazing. And thank you for all the information that you shared for us. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. So I'd like to thank you for joining us. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review on EU's immigration policy. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media at WNLPR. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio, Navi Mumbai, and Galway's Flat FM. Comments are very welcome via contact at WNLPR. You can also find our podcast on Anchor and other streaming platforms. This was Ramesh Ghanahariti, and I wish you a pleasant day.